If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I assume we have found Scott Chance's new theme song, because that sure sounds like it. Our new contributor, in case you haven't met him yet, is Scott Chance, and he's with us this morning. Hi. Hi. Happy Victoria Day. Okay. Let's start with that right there. So when Queen Elizabeth II passed away last year, and there would all this talk about, oh, how can we honor her? What can we do? Maybe we should have a holiday. I was thinking we should just rename Victoria Day to Elizabeth Day. Well, you're you're not wrong about that, that there is sort of thoughts around that. But we we already have been celebrating her birthday on uh, May 24th when actually we celebrate Victoria Day. I did. I had to do a lot of research into this to find out about Victoria Day. And this is going to sound a bit confusing. So just try to bear with me here as I try to explain it because there's a lot to it. You're going to tell us right, like why? I think I had asked you this question last week. Why do we sell it? What is Victoria? We understand it's Queen Victoria, but how did it become this big holiday? Yeah, exactly. So essentially it used to be called Sovereign's Day way back in the 1800s when it was like a whoever the sovereign ruler was it, their birthday became a holiday. Uh, but around 1840, uh, when it was Queen Victoria here in Canada, we developed like this stronger affection for the British Empire. So we there was talk of making a holiday called Empire's Day. But then everybody kind of realized it's like, well, we don't really love the empire. We just love Queen Victoria because she had close ties to Canada. Her father served in the military here. She sent her sons and daughters to live here. So that's how it kind of became known as Victoria Day. But she passed in 1901. And since then, there's been a few other monarchs, Queen Elizabeth, obviously, you mentioned. And we we celebrate all of those sort of monarchs' birthdays on Victoria Day. They've just kind of kept the name. And Queen Elizabeth's birthday is in April. They used to celebrate that in June. There's been various other uh, days. Basically, the reason that we celebrate it this weekend is because of the good weather. That's that's kind of what everybody has come to just assume because there's so many monarchs that have come and it's like, well, we're just going to leave it as Victoria Day. Do it on the weekend. So does anybody, though, even associate this with the sovereigns, as you say, it's supposed to be the sovereign's birthday. But now I think people just look at it like, hey, it's the first long weekend of summer. Well, that's exactly it. And the day has kind of come to take on its own meaning, even though traditionally, yes, it's about uh, monarchy and parliament and all the wonderful things that, uh, you know, Canada's association with the crown has has brought to our country. But there's a few reasons that it's kind of transcended that and become, I don't know, like, uh, dare I say, a party weekend, like you say, kick off to summer, right? Yes. So apparently May 24th back in the day was 
known as like militia day in England. It was when local militias would kind of gather to be counted, inspected, have a bit of training. But when that was over, all of the local militias would end up going to the bar. And as the years went on, the training ended earlier and earlier and the drinking lasted later and later. So there was kind of already that association. But our big kickoff, turning it into a party, sort of happened in 1849. This was known as the Annexation Manifesto. Maybe you've heard of this before. There was a group of... First of all, loving the history lesson. (laughs) Yes, please. Let's hear this. Okay. Okay. I like this stuff too. And this is what I really love about this job, Simi, is I get to like learn this stuff, right? And then talk about it. And I find this really... Interesting. So, a group of Montrealers in 1849 kind of had the idea that Canada should align itself a bit closer with the United States, possibly even join the United States. Well, most Canadians didn't love that idea. So, a group in Ontario threw a huge party in protest, and that party happened on May 24th. So, they had fireworks. It was like, hey, we're not, we're not joining the states. We love being part of the monarchy. We love it here. And essentially, the party just kind of grew and spread from there, and it's kind of taken on its own meaning. It was like, we're not doing that. We're loyal to the monarchy. We're independent. This is us. So is that why... And I often hear this, that in Ontario, they have fireworks on Victoria Day. Yeah, that's exactly it. So that group, it was from Toronto, and that's kind of what's caused... The If you draw the line through till now, yes, it was this big kickoff party. They celebrate with fireworks. The celebrations grew every year. And yeah, kind of spread throughout the country. But it does mean different things kind of depending on where you are. Like, for example, in Montreal, uh, May long weekend, it's like the kickoff to spring because now it's like, oh, there's not going to be any more frost so we can actually kind of plant. So on this weekend in Montreal, apparently the nurseries are packed. It's less about going I like to the that. beach and the campground. It's like you go and do your planting and that type of thing. Okay, I could see that because I was actually at the nursery, one of the garden centers on Saturday, and it was pretty busy. I think people here too, but really we start this process, I think, in mid-April. Right, yeah, a little bit earlier. And then, of course, as we know, here it's a party weekend. It's like you say, the official kickoff to Listen, summer. Did you see what it was like coming to work this morning? Yes. <laughs> did you see how nuts it was outside? There was there was some characters on the streets, yeah. It was so busy in downtown Vancouver this morning that it could have been like nighttime. It could have, like I was shocked at how many people were out there. There's still lineups to get into bars when I was coming into work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the weekend, at least in Alberta, I'm not sure how many people call it this here. I haven't heard it spoken this way here, but in Alberta, the weekend is referred to as the May 2-4, whether it's celebrated on May 24th or not. The May 2-4, because, you know, Queen Elizabeth's birthday, May 24th, but also coincidentally, 24 beers in a case or a flat of beer, and that's kind of the number of, you know, cans that the Albertans are expected to crush as they head off four by four into the bush. <laughs> First of all, love the generalization that you just made there. Well, it's true. It's true. I, I mean, maybe not. But. I have heard it referred to as that. And every time I hear that, I think, huh, I didn't hear that growing up, but now I hear it increasingly. So it's, it is people perhaps from another who moved from elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's just kind of like a fun sort of tongue in cheek way, but there are still people who uh, celebrate and embrace the traditional uh, view of May Long Weekend Victoria Day. Like, for example, in Victoria, BC, which is, yes, named for Queen Victoria. Today, there's a huge parade. There's going to be marching bands, some military regalia, all celebrating the traditional uh, Victoria a day, but I'm sure there'll be some, you know, cans lifted there as well. And I also love this little tidbit, which I found out because Scott and I were talking about it last week, is that this is not 
a paid holiday in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, and that's kind of an interesting thing too, is that like certain provinces have chosen like what they're going to uh, adhere to and what they're not going to. But hey, we are paid today, paid yes. holiday. Hip, hip, hooray for that. So it's not a paid holiday in Newfoundland and Labrador. Government employees only, not a paid holiday in Nova Scotia or Prince Edward Island, which is so fascinating to me because theoretically those are like the original provinces, right? Yeah. The original confederation, and they are not the ones who, who mark this Sovereign's Day. Maybe the idea there is that they've seen how we've turned it into this party thing and it's like, we're not going to pay you guys to party, you know? Uh. Maybe. Okay. All right. I love this. I love the history lesson. Thank you so much. So now we know why we have this day. I'm still in favor of changing the name though to Elizabeth Day. You know what? She has had a lot more impact and I think that it would definitely, or a lot more impact in our lives and in our generations. So I think that it would maybe help to um, reinforce the idea of, of what, why we do this with our allegiance to the monarchy. But yeah, I kind of think that it's, it's this cool way that um, we can celebrate our heritage, but also it's kind of taken on its own sort of independent meaning for Canadians. It. Yeah, it's it's a great vibe. I love that people are celebrating. Any excuse to celebrate, right? Um, Scott, thank you so much for the history lesson. You're welcome. I happy Victoria so Day. Yes, happy Victoria Day. That is our contributor, Scott Shuds, telling us why. Why is Victoria Day a holiday in so many provinces in Canada? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi very big area of research right now and it's so important. It's all about trying to find treatment for chronic pain because what we are discovering is it's about more than just taking a pill. Everyone experiences pain differently, right? Whether it's men versus women or there are even genetic differences. In fact, there's even research that suggests gardening. Yes, gardening can be effective in treating chronic pain, maybe even more effective than opioids. How can that be? Well, let's find out. Dr. Andrea Ferlin is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and author of Eight Steps to Conquer Pain and joins us now. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Good morning. Good morning. How can gardening treat pain? Yeah, because uh, gardening is a form of uh, exercise, right? <laughs> so it's exercise for the body, but also exercise for the mind. We, when we are treating pain, especially chronic pain, we, I tell my patients to do some lifestyle modifications. They need to exercise, move more. I tell them motion is lotion for your joints. So gardening is a form of um, moving, moving their joints, but also it's a distraction to the brain away from pain. Because we know from research that when you pay attention to pain, you feel pain more intense. But also because you'll be moving, carrying weights and walking, there will be production of endogenous opioids. They are called endorphins. And not only that, but um, contact with nature. We know that if a person is in contact with green areas, nature, they feel more calm their mind is less stressed. And not only that, but the sun. I tell my patients that vitamin D is extremely important for pain, for osteoporosis. And if they do some exercise, gardening under the sun, they will be producing vitamin D. So there are a lot of benefits of gardening. Dr. Ferland, this is interesting because I guess for many people, they feel like if they're in pain, they need to rest, right? And so sometimes does it feel counterproductive for them when you tell them, no, no, you mm -hmm. must get out and move and exercise? 
Yeah, of course, it depends on the type of pain, right? So if they have an acute injury, an inflammation of a joint, and they are in pain, then it's going to be hard. Uh, or if they had a trauma, like an accident, something that caused an acute injury. But when we talk about chronic pain, and chronic pain is defined as ongoing pain, daily, constant, for at least three months, and what caused the pain is already healed, so if you think about the tendons, muscles, bones that cause the initial pain, they are already healed. We know that pain now is more like a memory, is more like um, a resemblance of the acute pain. And in this case, we teach the person hurt does not mean harm. I know you're going to feel pain, but if you can do a little bit of exercise, you don't need to spend the whole day in your garden. <laughs> I know that sometimes is. a... Is a temptation. You want to do everything in one day. Like pace yourself. Try to do a few things every day. Even if it hurts, um, try to endure. Try to keep going. Trust the process that moving will end up helping you at the end mm-hmm. uh, instead of giving in and staying in bed, especially on a nice, sunny, warm day that... Um, the garden is almost calling for you to come here and take care of me. <laughs> That's very true. But Dr. Ferlin, do we know why people experience pain differently? Yes, yeah, we know. There are so many things that affect that. For example, uh, sex. Males and females are very different. We know that uh, women are more sensitive to pain. The thresholds are lower, the tolerance. And especially around the menstrual period. So if a few days before the menstrual period, they are more sensitive to pain. We also know that uh, there are a lot of uh, past experiences with pain, expectation. If a person is expecting to feel pain because they think that that's a, it's what is acceptable, they will feel. Actually, they, the pain will be more intense. Also, if they are more stressed, if they are more tired, if they are more anxious that day, they will have a bad day and they will feel more pain. There are a lot of uh, uh, memories of pain that also affect how the person will perceive pain. Also, who is around them? (laughs) Uh, We know that loneliness makes a person to feel more pain. The pain is more intense when they are alone than compared to when they have someone that cares for them. We know that holding hands hands with someone, a loved one, alleviates pain. (laughs) So that's true. If someone... Uh, you know, cares for you and they hold your hands, they touch you, touching the skin alleviates pain. The pain is less intense. That is so interesting, though, just the idea that all of those things can affect pain. Dr. Ferland, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me today. That was so interesting. Dr. Andrea Ferland is an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto, talking about how something very basic like gardening in the sunshine can actually do more to treat people's chronic pain than taking an opioid. It seems counterproductive, I know, but I can see how that makes sense. This is Mornings with Simi. We have had income tax here in Canada for a little over 100 years now. It was started back in 20, 20, 1917, I should say, to help finance the First World War. And in fact, for the first years, fewer than 10% of the population actually had to pay income tax. Why? Well, because of all the high dollar exemptions that they had there, it was meant primarily as a tax on the wealthy. Well, clearly that has dramatically changed, right, over the decades. But the argument and the debate has continued. Should wealthy people be taxed more and at a higher rate? 
And today, it's really more about the uber-wealthy, right? But let's talk about that argument. Dr. Tom Mallison is an associate professor of social justice and peace studies at Western University and joins us now. Dr. Mallison, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Is it time, do you think, to revive this discussion about, you know, the uber-wealthy paying more taxes? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we live in a time when we have this new phenomenon of not just rich people that have always existed, but super uber rich people. You know, Elon Musk, who has $270 billion, or in Canada, David Thompson, who has seven, uh, roughly $73 billion. So the income tax is great. We need an income tax. We should have an income tax that taxes rich people at higher rates. But by itself, it's inadequate. Imagine, for example, if we had a 100% income tax. We're not going to get that, but imagine just for a second. And someone like David Thompson was spending, I don't know, $100 million a year. It would still take 770 years for his wealth to be reduced to normal amounts. An income tax by itself doesn't cut it to deal with this new phenomenon of super rich people with mountains of wealth. We need a new tool to deal with the new problem. And I think that tool is the wealth tax. Okay. And so but I guess the question here is, what do we consider wealthy? Yeah. So, you know, there's no, there's no um, specific line about what that is. But I think that the important point to keep in mind is that over the last 40, 45 years, um, we've seen a real takeoff of inequality. So the key fact to keep in mind that, you know, everyone should know is that in the, the median male worker today is actually making less money in real inflation-adjusted terms than in 1973. That's a crazy thought, right, that our economies have almost doubled in productivity. We have much better technology. Our economies are much more productive. And yet regular people are not doing any better, right? So where has all that extra wealth gone? Well, it's basically all been vacuumed upwards. Like today, the 1% in the U.S. make about $1.3 million each. The average CEO makes 351 times more than the average worker. So that's where we really need to focus, the top 1% and even more so the top 0.1%. Is there an appetite, do you think, for doing that today? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, it's clearer and clearer that um, as inequality grows, you know, this is not an abstract problem. It creates terrible problems for society. Inequality is a cancer on the body of the community. It, it has all kinds of problems. Maybe I'll just quickly mention the worst ones. It's bad for our environment. Right? We know that the richest emit far more than anyone else. The richest 20 people emit 80,000, sorry, 8,000 times more carbon than the poorest 1 billion people combined. Inequality is bad for our democracy, right? The more that the rich and powerful have money, the more that our society is distorted into an uh, oligarchy. It's bad for opportunity. You know, in a, uh, inequality makes a mockery of the idea of equal opportunity. You know, in Canada, uh, we have nothing like equal opportunity. Indigenous people have 2.7 times a higher high school dropout rate. They have double the unemployment, 10 times the incarceration rate. There are 71 Indigenous communities that don't even have clean drinking water. It was nothing like equal opportunity. 
But here's the thing, Dr. Mallison, is it we can do that, we can collect more money, but I think what frustrates a lot of Canadians is that how do we know that the money is going to go to those areas that you just specified where it's actually needed? Because we've had money, governments have had money, that doesn't mean they spend it where we want them to spend it. 100%. Yeah, uh, so that's that's part of the problem, right? That you absolutely, you have to have high taxes and we have to ensure that governments spend it the way we want it. And we have to ensure that rich people pay it. Right. So whenever we're talking about high taxes, you can't just say, like, let's have you know, a higher tax without also saying, how are we going to ensure that rich people pay the taxes? Because rich people have always um, tried to avoid and evade their taxes and they always will. And so we need to be having more forthright, transparent conversations about how do we actually uh, force the rich to comply? And here, too, the answers are pretty commonsensical like we've had lots of experience of how to actually get the money you know you do things like you have you hire more auditors you have um stiffer penalties for people who are who are cheating on their taxes right at the moment when rich people cheat on their taxes they basically just get a slap on the wrist imagine if there were more severe penalties and and you know you actually saw people fail like you would see a massive decline in that kind of tax fraud. And so we have the two, we know what the tools are to ensure that rich people actually pay their taxes. But would we actually see that decline? That's what I wonder, because we also know that with this particular category as well, they have the ability to find the ways to not pay taxes. So they will, will this not also give them more incentive to avoid that? Yeah, um, it would, it gives them lots of incentive to avoid it, but rich people always have that. You know, um, I was just reading the other day about a rich New Yorker who was so upset about tax rates. And he was saying, you know, if they raise taxes, rich people are going to leave. The year was uh, 1893, I think. And he was complaining about an income tax of 2%. (laughs) The rich always will complain. They'll always howl and protest. Um, And, yeah, they have incentives to try and avoid. But we know what to do to prevent that. We do things like... Um, have third-party reporting. So that means that um, banks and money managers automatically share the information about your money with the tax services, Canada Revenue Agency. That happens for regular people today. So I'm a professor. Every year, my university just automatically sends the information of my income to CRA, right? Then that, when you do that, the evidence shows that you get very little avoidance, right? Because it just happens automatically, um, which people don't have that, but there's no reason why we couldn't have third-party reporting for everybody. Right. And yet uh, you would find, I think, Dr. Mellison, that even people who would not consider themselves wealthy sometimes seem reluctant to say, yes, let's do that, because maybe they'll be wealthier one day. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I think that's that's true. Um, how do you fight that? How do you how do you tell them? Yeah, no, you're probably not going to be wealthy one day. Like, how do you reason with people? Well, I think on the one hand, you point out just that the empirical reality that most people actually will not be wealthy. Uh, we actually have less social mobility now than we did 30, 40 years ago when we had higher taxes, right? So, if you actually want to live in a society um, where there is a uh, genuine opportunity for people to move up if you want to live in a society that has higher taxes and better public services you know if like canadians and americans want to start living the american dream and not just dreaming it 
you want to move to Denmark or Sweden, right? Places that actually have uh, free education and things like that make it easy to move up. Um, so the other thing to say about that is like, you know, even if an individual does become rich, what about the rest of us? Like, we live in a society, we live in a community. How can we be okay with a situation where David Thompson has $73 billion and there are 30,000 of our neighbors sleeping on the street? It's, it's totally inhumane. We could tax David Thompson 0.5% of his wealth, 0.5% of his wealth. He would not even notice, and we would abolish homelessness. Hmm. So, you know, that to me is like there's, a, there's like the moral impetus between, behind all of this, which I think is that we all have a right to live decent, flourishing lives, and we should redistribute taxation to make that uh, possible. Well, thanks for the discussion this morning. Appreciate that. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Why do we love craft dinner so much here in Canada? I, for one, feel as though I spent many years keeping them in business, but clearly I was not alone because it turns out uh, we per capita eat more craft dinner than any other country. Okay, I get that. It also shows up in our literature. In fact, when you read a lot, you will see that the depiction of food in books says a lot about the whatever culture, whatever it is that you're reading about. And you know what? Canada is no different. Dr. Shelley Boyd is with us now, the Dean of Kwantlen Polytechnic University and author of Canadian Literary Fair. Dr. Boyd, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Delighted to be here this morning. Well, why write about food in books? How how does this impact the reader? It's a good question, Simi. Food is really important in literature. And when you think about it, you know, authors don't have to feed their characters. They're not alive. So when they do put food in a text, it has something to say. And uh, usually it's, it's looking at that food voice. It has complicated stories to tell us. I love a book that has food kind of just written into it when like a good meal. And they could describe it a little bit, but you're right. Not every book does that, does it? No, that's right. Some characters, I mean, you never see them eat, right? And then other other so stories, true. sometimes the author will give enough that you could actually cook a recipe from a novel, right? They go into so much detail, so much rich detail that you're you're tempted to recreate that dish. Dr. Boyd, you're kind of blowing my mind right now because I had not considered this before. <laughs> but you're right in that some books, I, I do really love the descriptions of food there. And so is there in Canadian literature... Would you say, is there Canadian literary fare in there? Oh, for sure. I mean, there are certain foods that we see a great deal of, like craft dinner, for instance. Uh, when you start looking through Canadian literature, craft dinner is everywhere, right? And usually very brief references, but it, it's there throughout. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, in Canadian literature, we always call it craft dinner or KD, which is very different from the States. They refer to it as craft macaroni and cheese dinner. And it's because the brand changed in the U.S. in the 1970s. But Canada kept the original name. And so we have a unique vocabulary in Canada. What other types of food shows up in Canadian literature? Uh, Many, many foods, of course. Uh, You know, we're a very diverse country. Um, but also thinking about our colonial past. So, for instance, bison and thinking about uh, what has happened on the plains and, and the loss of the bison, but they're also their persistence. So seeing both how Indigenous and non-Indigenous writers write about bison can be very telling about those histories and colonial past and, and the present and how, um, 
you know, those, those struggles continue. Food is the way I know that we communicate with each other, the way cultures, I think, communicate with each other as well. So has, would you say there is a Canadian culture around food? Oh, for sure. Um, usually what we found through our book when we were writing this is that um, food in Canadian literature often has a, a challenging story to tell. So the, the foods often speak of sometimes poverty, scarcity, exclusion, colonialism. It can be very different from the celebratory narrative we often find in a Canadian cookbook, which maybe talks about bounty, right, and, and celebrating sort of the, the richness of our food. Canadian literature tells another side to our food narrative. And usually there is this longing for connection, longing for belonging. What other side then? How, how does that manifest? Well, what we sort of discovered often, there were a number of um, stories that came up talking about tea and oranges. And of course, you think about the very famous Leonard Cohen song, you know, Suzanne takes you down to her place by the river, she feeds you tea and oranges, and and of course, draws you near to her. Tea and oranges is sort of this, this interesting combination in Canadian literature, where something magical kind of happens when they come together. And usually it is about some sort of connection that characters are looking for, you know, wanting to belong, wanting to to have that kind of inspirational moment over food where people truly connect. That is so interesting. Well, I'm glad to see you've written a book about it. I'm going to have to check it out, Dr. Point. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Simi, and have a wonderful weekend. You too. That's a lot to think about. That is Dr. Shelley Boyd, Dean of Kwantlen Polytechnic University. Also author of a book called Canadian Literary Fair. I love a book that has some descriptions of food in there. I just do. And she's absolutely right. I hadn't really thought about it before, though, that some books don't. Some books never mention food. The characters never really eat anything. Uh, But I prefer a book that definitely has a little bit of description in there. It gives you just more of an idea of kind of what it's all about. I found a way in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've heard about how the government in an unprecedented situation is going to be sending patients who need radiation cancer treatment to Bellingham. And I know if you if you need that treatment, if you're on that list, you think, yes, please, I just need to get this. And of course you do. But how did we get to this point? Because it is unprecedented. How is it? Did we not train enough radiation technologists? Is there not enough capacity in the system? So we thought, let's talk to somebody who knows. Sarah Edley is with us now, the provincial manager of the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technicians in BC. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Is this something that has been a long time coming? Like, have you been able to see that, listen, this is about to happen? Yeah, I mean, we've had lots of conversations with our members, with committees, with stakeholders, and one of the biggest concerns that keeps circling around is absolutely staffing issues and vacancies, things like that. Like, for how long have we seen this? Has Have fewer and fewer people been wanting to train as a radiation technologist? Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of factors here. We've seen uh, requests from recruiters advertise um, job postings to our members that skyrocketed in the last couple of years. Um, there's been an explosion in demand for these healthcare services uh, post-pandemic. Um, even though we're performing high numbers, there's still long waits in some instances. And I also think some of the, the programs are, are quite small and a couple of the cohorts the last couple of years haven't been full up to capacity. Okay, well, let's talk about that, for instance. Let's say somebody wants to become 
a radiation technologist, what is the process like and what do they need to know? Yeah, so you can join for the medical imaging professions. We have three different disciplines. We have MRI, radiological technology, so that's for the x-ray-based imaging, and then we have nuclear medicine. Those are in BC. We have a couple different programs for radiography. There are two-year diploma programs. For the most part, you can join right out of high school. Um, And for radiation therapy, it's a Bachelor of Science program, and you need one year of post-secondary education, followed by about uh, three years of education in that program. So would you say access to it is fairly straightforward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like any other health science profession that's out there, but uh, maybe the issue is a lot of people don't, don't really know about our profession. That's what I would say. I think a lot of people don't realize, too, that it, it is as accessible as you just described it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I think uh, maybe one thing is that medical radiation technologists are healthcare professionals who use different forms of energy or radiation for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes. And in Canada, we have four different types of MRTs. So that includes our radiation therapists. And that's sort of what the, the media has been about recently with sending patients to the U.S., Uh, We also have different types of medical imaging technologists, so those examples that I just gave. And just to give you an idea of just how important MRTs are to healthcare, last year the BC government uh, put out a report on medical imaging and they said over a million MRI and CT scans were performed in 2021-22. So this number doesn't take into account all the other types of procedures that MRTs are involved in. And in terms of radiation therapy, about half of people with cancer diagnosis receive radiation therapy as part of their treatment. So in BC, that's around 14,000 patients a year across hundreds of thousands of appointments. And the demand for these services is growing. Okay, so, so we know all that then. Sarah, mm-hmm. did, we, did we say, okay, we need to open more training spots? Do we need to... Was there anything that changed in the last couple of years to make people realize we need more people in this profession? Yeah, so I'll just start with radiation therapy. Um, There is only one program in BC, and there's only a handful of others across Canada. Last year, BC increased the seats in the Radiation Therapy Bachelor of Science program at BCIT. That went from 12 to 20 seats. This approval took place a little late in the application cycle, so they were only able to bring in 13 students last year. But in the long term, this move to have more seats in the the program will definitely help with the situation of not having enough staff to expand radiation therapy appointments. Um, Another thing that BC did was they opened a new MRI diploma program at BCIT. So that just started and we'll see its first graduates entering the workforce in a couple of years. Um, The one area I think that has remained quite stagnant has been in our radiological technologists or radiography. So BC added two new programs in 2011 and 12, so a little over 10 years ago. Um, Those programs are in Prince George and Victoria. So this has made a huge impact on those communities. But overall, in the last 10 years, just with the explosion in demand for services everywhere, uh, that's where we're starting to see shortages as well. And some of these professionals end up advancing into other areas like breast imaging. And um, for a while, they were also being cross-trained into MRI as a second discipline. Okay, so if you what that's a, that's a different area than obviously radiography. What kind of qualifications do you need for that? Yeah, so for all of these programs, there's a post-secondary education that's required, and the programs across Canada do vary in length. In BC, they're two-year diploma programs, six semesters continuously, and then as soon as you finish these programs, you write a national certification exam. 
Okay. So again, people need to know about these things, don't they? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been involved in a lot of career fairs recently. And um, the number one questions that I get from students is how long is the program? How much is it going to cost? How much will I make? And what's my my job prospect when I finish? So um, in some of those areas, I think we just need to get our, our profession out there a little bit more and showcase what the profession is all about and gain some, some public uh, interest in it. No kidding. I feel like if you can tell people, hey, you're going to make good money and you'll have a job immediately upon graduation, that's appealing to a lot of people right now. Definitely. And then for students who just completed the program, um, we are seeing recruitment efforts across the country to try to attract these graduates. So for some people that have the ability to relocate, I think they would seriously consider that option if the pay is competitive and they're being offered relocation support or support for, for student loans, that sort of thing. Um, I've also seen some employers are advertising um, training opportunities to develop professionally, and that's really exciting to see for someone who's just starting out. They want to be supported, and they want to see themselves growing as professionals. So let me ask you, is this the same situation right across Canada then that BC finds itself in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're seeing uh, in different provinces sort of the same kind of situation is happening with just the increasing demand and uh, I think a big thing has just been that hospitals have added a lot more equipment and they focused on um, growth in operating hours, but the workforce itself hasn't grown enough to keep keep pace with this. All right. So then are you getting support, though, Sarah? Like when you when you hear about people being sent to, to Bellingham, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, our members want what's best for, for cancer patients and for those who need radiation therapy to receive treatment as quickly as possible. They also want to see solutions, of course, to the challenges they're facing so that they can help get more patients through quicker. Uh, they've been working under immense pressure to balance workload demands and, and with that, the need to provide high-quality patient care. So having enough resources to do the job well is incredibly important so that MRTs can provide this care to patients and also look after themselves. Um, like I said, with the, the move to increase the seats in the radiation therapy program here, I think there definitely have been some actions that have been taken, but I think we all feel like there's a lot more still to be done and that can be done. Like what? Oh, career promotion, um, public recognition for the profession, um, maybe having some conversations with some of the localized challenges that are ha- happening in certain regions to help recruit to those areas. So things like that. So how, do you think the demand is there? Like if we were to do some of those things that you talked about there, expand the program, get more people trained, would would people sign up? Yeah, I think I, think I you know, I, when I have conversations with these high school students or people that are looking for different career options and we really start to dive deep into what the profession has to offer, I think that they're, they're surprised to learn about it and um, it's something that, you know, they just because they didn't know about it, they didn't consider it. But somebody who has sort of an interest for for science and healthcare, and they want to get into a caring profession, and they want to have a job as soon as they they finish their education, um, I think they they perk up and they want to learn more. So even though it is a very challenging time right now for the MRT profession and for those patients who are waiting, um, we do have some incredible MRTs in this province doing great work, and you can. Uh, you know, learn a lot from them just by attending some of the info sessions that the programs are offering or if you see medical radiation technology advertised at a future career fair, uh, you can find out more and you can also check out our website at cmrt.ca slash mrtcareer. 
I'm going to get you to say that one more time so that people get that very clearly. What is the website? If people are interested in this as a career, where should they go? So we have a page on our our association website, camrt.ca slash mrtcareer. And you can uh, actually find a video where you hear from some of our, our medical radiation technologists about what a day in the life of an MRT is like. This is on a webinar that we posted on our site. You can also find a list of educational programs in Canada and a little bit more uh, information about this profession. All right, that sounds good. I hope people do that so we can get more people trained and into the profession. Sarah, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much again for having me and for allowing me to speak on behalf of CMRTDC and all of our, our technologists in the province. Anytime. That is Sarah Ederly, who is a provincial manager of the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technicians in BC. We need more radiation techs. It is as simple as that. If we want to do more of those cancer treatments and screenings and everything here in BC, as opposed to sending them to Bellingham, that's the issue. More people need to get involved in the profession. And it sounds like there is room. There are jobs, but we need to get people trained. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Finding a job these days can be incredibly challenging, but what if you're undergoing treatment right now? What if you're undergoing treatment for you know rehab or addiction? What about finding a job for people in those situations? Well, the provincial government is offering up some help to integrate employment services within treatment and recovery centers. What does that mean? Well, it means that they would like people undergoing treatment to be able to find jobs and integrate into the labor market. So how is this going to work? And what kind of jobs are we talking about here? Can every employer integrate people going through treatment? Well, joining us now is Sheila Malcolmson, Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. Thank you very much for being here. Morning, Simi. So tell me a bit about this program. How is this going to work? Right now, we know people that take a really brave step to go into addiction treatment, once they're with, you know, in the facility and in within the care of the recovery home, they have a ton of support. And we hear from a lot of people that they kind of fall off the cliff when they leave the center. And especially the announcement we made on, on Friday, Guy Salicella just described this so powerfully. Um, you maybe have a criminal record. You um, don't, you've got a big gap in your employment. It's hard to find a job. People don't trust you. You can't rent a room. You end up in a totally the same life that you were before and everything you learned in that addiction treatment center falls away. So we are now working to build that job training and connection to that next employer while you're still in the six week or the six months uh, treatment plan. So it's not just counseling to help you get over your addiction. It's at the same time getting you the skills and lining up that work for you for, so that you have a much more seamless and supported and uh, therapeutic exit from treatment. Right. That's so it's a big it, picture intention. It's not just then the person in the treatment who needs some assistance with this. Like, what about employers? How much work and support will they get to make sure that they're providing the right things that this person needs? Yes, it's such a good question. You know, and the work that my ministry is doing, social development and poverty reduction, is all focused on removing barriers to people that have um, have had barriers getting into work. And that could be mental health, it could be addictions, it could be poverty, it could be homelessness. Um, so that's, you know, we're kind of challenging our work BC centres to do things in a different way. Now that there's a worker shortage, we can really focus in a more intense way on the people that may have been out of the job market for 
you know, years or maybe decades. So what's happening with this new pilot program that we just announced on Friday, within the confines of the treatment center, people can start to get some work experience and actually get you know, reimbursed partly for that. So that might be um, landscaping or um, construction or farming right within the actual treatment home itself. So start to gain some experience and then have kind of a letter of recommendation on the other side. Um, but as well, some of it can be simply skills like uh, financial literacy or computer training, again, that they get within the recovery home. Um, it might be anger management. So all those things are really focused on the person. And then also having the opportunity within that time that you're, you're kind of, you know, twiddling your thumbs within the addiction treatment center, you know, one person at a time, one community at a time, there's different kinds of employers, there's different kinds of jobs that are open. Um, And so we're going to learn this by doing, it hasn't happened in a funded way before. So we'll be hearing from employers about what supports they need. In some cases, what we can do through our um, social assistance um, program and work BC program is we can provide um, employers or provide the worker um, with a wage subsidy so that there's less risk for the employer. Um, but that those pieces are all going to be so personalized, one community and, and one person at a time. And that's what we're funding now for the first time. Okay, right. So if the employer also decides, listen, I, I'm not aware, I don't know how to deal with like these kind of complex needs. I need some help with that. Will they be able to get that? Yeah, that's what we're doing already in a whole in a whole range of ways for vulnerable people that haven't have been kind of locked out of the job market. So we're pretty good at that with lots of local partners. We just haven't brought that inside addiction treatment centers before. And that's what's new about Friday's announcement. Okay, so interesting. And what about the education aspect of this too? Like, is this open to a number of different kind of professions? Well, you know, again, like what jobs are in what community is going to make a difference? We and what we announced Friday is our, our funding for existing addiction treatment beds in Prince Rupert, Vernon, Nanaimo, Kamloops. Uh, yeah, five five places. So you know, depending what the job market is there, then. Um, then you know, the training and the support that they need. Um, but in some cases, the the kind of what's been a barrier both to work and also a, a problem that has maybe got the person into addiction, um, you know, we have seen some commonalities like anger management, um, like just um, not being able to deal with stress very well and so turning to substances instead. And so within the context of the addiction treatment, we can put the very directed counseling that will um, help the individual with that anger management and stress management, um, distress tolerance, interpersonal communications. That's going to help them out of addiction, but it's also going to make them a better employee and uh, do better in that first job interview, um, do better um, moving towards their first you know, their first weeks and months of work and then hopefully be able to lock them in as a as a long-time employee. And what we hear from people in addiction is that they really need, you know, to have their time filled. They need to have meaningful work. They need to have success. Um, and, uh, and that can maybe be the very best way for some people to lock in what they learned in addiction treatment and have it last. Right. Can you see this expanding beyond this? Like, is this just a, a initial look at this? Is this a pilot project? This is a pilot project we're doing with Canadian Mental Health Association, BC, and they've innovated in so many ways. And they've got really strong chapters in so many um, communities in the province. And that's why 
uh, CMHA chose these five communities just because they've got such a strong track record already. I also want to say that we know that a number of addiction treatment centers have been doing this in a bit of an ad hoc way. Uh, So that was kind of recognized as if we properly support this, if we fund it more directly and say, you know, if you are getting this funding from us, we don't want you only to be doing the counseling, addiction counseling and getting the person um, out of their substance use problem. But we also want to fund specifically and track the outcomes uh, for adding the job training into the treatment plans. And so certainly we've got a lot of optimism about if we fund this properly and track it, um, that it should be scalable. Um, And it's certainly at a time of worker shortage. We can't afford to have people sitting on the sidelines who want to be working. And then from a therapeutic point of view, we understand increasingly that meaningful work can be a real uh, protector against falling back into addiction and going through that cycle of uh, of recovery and then mm-hmm. going back into substance abuse. So we've got a lot of optimism about this. We're going to fund it, test it, uh, kick the tires, um, and uh, and evolve evolve the program and what we learn. So is there an opportunity then, okay, for employers out there or or managers listening to this and they thought, you know, this is something that I I would like to get involved in. Is there an opportunity for that? You know, I would say that there absolutely is. Um, We're really thankful to employers that step up in, in, um, in this particular area. It's such important work. What I would say is get connected with your work BC centers, which are also funded through my ministry. Um, They are working with vulnerable people or people that have had maybe language barriers. It may be a history of homelessness. It may be women fleeing uh, domestic violence. Uh, So that's your very best entry point. And we're working in different ways with the WorkBC centers at a time of worker shortage. Um, And in these five communities at a smaller scale, employers can be sure that their local chapter of Canadian Mental Health Association will be reaching out and advertising better what the opportunities are. So right now, more than anything, we want people to know if they're struggling with addiction, and especially if they've gone through a treatment program before and it just hasn't held, we want them to know that we really hope that they will come forward, uh, go through treatment again, and know that there may be some different outcomes because we'll have uh, different and better supports for them this time through. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Simi. That is Sheila Malcolmson, who's the Minister of Social Development and Poverty Reduction, talking about this new program. It is a pilot project, uh, but you know, it's it's a good idea. It's, they've announced about $5 million uh, with the Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division to try to help people who are currently undergoing treatment at bed-based recovery centres by helping them also find jobs, giving them enhanced employment services, uh, skills training, job search assistance, job maintenance support so that they're not just leaving kind of treatment to nothing, that they're going to find that they're leaving treatment with a job, uh, which, you know, I think could go a long ways for a lot of people. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.